Welcome to Out of the Lab, a podcast interviewing entrepreneurs who've taken research out of the lab and built it into a company that's serving the world. These entrepreneurs are heroes, and the planet needs more of them. So tune in, learn from their successes and failures, and get inspired. Visit Bountiful.org to join our community and realize your power to save the world. Hello and welcome to Out of the Lab. I'm your host, Max Finder. Today's guest is Alex Reed. He is the co-founder and president of Fluent Analytics. They are a manufacturer of industrial and laboratory monitoring solutions, producing continuous data streams related to polymers and biopharmaceuticals and polymerization. They are able to measure a bunch of different things in the polymer production process, which was previously uh, unmeasurable. So Alex is actually the son of the inventor Wayne Reed, who is a tenured professor at Tulane University, where he runs the polymer uh, RMC, poly RMC lab. And Alex, who does not have a technical background, but now has multiple patents where he is a named inventor on them, he essentially took a technology that his father had invented, licensed out to a, a, an industry partner, which was then subsequently returned to the lab. Alex then decided, you know, let's make a business out of this. And it's a really inspiring story of how Alex built this business from the ground up, raised initial funding, did SBIR grants, built the team. They're now a 25-person team selling into multiple markets and applications. They've raised $13 million from institutional venture capitalists like Energy Innovation Capital and strategic investors like Mitsubishi Chemical Holdings. It's a really inspiring story. Alex talks a lot about lessons learned, the importance of the team, the importance of going and talking to customers as early as possible. In fact, one of their customers was the uh, client that originally paid for the initial, some of the initial prototyping work and the initial unit, the commercialized units. So Alex really built this company from the ground up and it's a deep technology startup which he learned how to do, as he said, in trial by fire. So just simply from experience. He discusses the importance of bringing experts around the table, talking about their chairman, Bill Bottoms, who is a uh, experienced venture capitalist and, and uh, technologist in the semiconductor space, who really provided a lot of guidance to Alex early on and continues to do so to this day. And the, the CTO of the company was the grad student that had worked with Professor Wayne Reed on the technology originally. So it really emphasizes the importance of the team and how Alex was able to pull all of these uh, resources and people together to form what is an exciting technology company today. So enjoy the episode. Visit bountiful.work, W-O-R-K, to join our community. And thanks for tuning in. Alex, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Max. Happy to be here. So I'd love to get started with the uh, PolyRMC R&D Center. It seemed like that's sort of where you got your commercialization origin and, and founded Fluence Analytics out of that R&D Center. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you did there? And your, it seemed like you had a business role there and, and, and ended up you know, building this technology company from there. So I'd love to hear about the origin story from that. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the... the, the commercialization aspect out of the university is always, for me, the most interesting part, you know, how do you take the research and actually make it 
quote unquote useful for somebody uh, in the market. So uh, at Tulane University in New Orleans, uh, there's this research center and it actually was, was uh, run by my dad, who's a physics professor at Tulane. Uh, and he's actually the inventor of our technology. So uh, I grew up working in the lab very young, uh, became very interested in, in technology and you know, learned a lot about instrumentation and some of the stuff we do uh, today and um, quickly gravitated more towards that commercial side. So uh, I actually graduated school during uh, the Great Recession uh, with an economics degree. I've done some work in finance and uh, approached my dad, I was like, you know, it's not a great market to look for a job anyway. Uh, you've been telling me about these technologies and how you want to do something with them. Why don't we start a business? Uh, and he just laughed at me because obviously I was you know, young and didn't know what I was doing. But he's like, well, if you could figure it out, go for it. I was like, I'll figure it out. Um, so anyway, so that was, you know, if you look at what you need to, to commercialize technology, it was, you know, the entrepreneur, in this case, the young and dumb entrepreneur uh, with the scientists uh, and, and the technology, um, you know, partnered up. And then our CTO at the time, Mike Trensky, was his grad student. Um, so he joined. And, and then the biggest other piece that we had was uh, our chairman, uh, Dr. Bill Bottoms, who is a, a pretty well-known venture capitalist in the Bay Area. Uh, did a lot of work in the semiconductor space and all kinds of, you know, he was a VC and then he did a, a bunch of uh, startups as, a, as an entrepreneur and, and an executive of some public companies. So that mentorship for someone like me, uh, you know, an executive with no experience was, was critical. So unless you have someone with experience, partnering up with someone like that uh, will certainly help the development and, and avoid a lot of the, the common mistakes. So had your dad not commercialized anything to that point when you started bugging him about the opportunity? Uh, actually, no, he did. So there was a, a small instrument he had developed that he had licensed out to an established company, which is one of the other routes. Uh, you know, rather than doing a startup, you just take a technology and you license it to either a big pharma company or in this case a small instrumentation company and uh so he licenses this product out and it, it did pretty well you know they, they sold some systems uh so we had actually looked at licensing this other technology we did it went through an acquisition and then the license was returned which is what prompted me to ask he's like well you know we could license this back out to some other company i said well, why don't why would we do that why don't we do it ourselves um, so that's really what prompted it. So he had had some success with traditional licensing, uh, but this time we wanted to drive it to avoid, or basically to be in control of the, uh, the development and deployment. And you were involved in that original license deal or in, or you were bugging him at the time of its return. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So it, it had happened while I was you know, too young to do anything. <laughs> And then by the time I was graduating, uh, that license was returned and, and that was the opportunity. I said, look, you know, the market's bad for finance. I can help you build this research center. Uh, so I originally started working with them there to basically bring in more commercial contracts uh, to the university because 
the technologies were so interesting. We had our customers, petrochemical and pharma companies, funding research to basically develop the technology while it was still in the university. Uh, so I helped with that side, but I said, you know, I'll do that as long as we can then do a company. And he had agreed to that. And so then we did, you know, SBIR route. We, we started to go down the path of how do we fund it uh, after a little bit of time, you know, working with some customers. And, and so you, like you saw some of those sponsored research agreements with the petrochemical and pharmaceutical companies. I mean, that was money that was, like you just said, I think, sponsoring the research that your dad was doing in the lab. I mean, did they have any kind of claim onto the commercial, you know, the commercialized products that might come from that research or from any licenses or they had a first right of refusal, anything like that you can touch on? Yeah, excellent question, Max. Uh, that That's definitely something to watch for. Um, we always negotiated to retain rights around our IP. So because we had existing IP and technology, uh, what we did was we basically said, look, anything that improves what we already have, our patent estates and our technology will be ours. Anything that would improve your chemistry uh, would be yours. So we, we were fortunate in that we were developing hardware, software, you know, analytics tools that a chemical company would not be interested in commercializing anyway. So I think the challenge is if you're developing new chemistry and getting sponsored research, then those negotiations would probably be a lot more contentious uh, than our experience was. And so what was their incentive for sponsoring the research then in the first place? Uh, information. So they were getting access uh, to a new way of analyzing their products that they'd never been able to do before because this was a unique you know, patented technology we developed. Um, and so basically we were giving them insights they'd never seen before. And uh, that was in and of itself enough incentive for them to, to fund pretty substantial projects. Yeah, but ultimately they're a customer of this product, not a seller of this product. Correct. Yeah, that's how it ended up working out. So interesting, you mentioned that. So we would do these projects and uh, several times, you know, we'd show them all these great insights, you know, because what we do just very quickly is uh, we have technology that can in real time monitor polymer processes. So we can actually track reactions and, and see properties of materials during synthesis, which no one can do today. You have to do a lot of offline testing and it's super cumbersome. Um, so we were giving them all this information and we'd get to the end of these projects and they'd say, that's awesome, you know, really great. Yeah, it really has helped us with this you know, new product or whatever we're working on. Uh, we would really love to have one of these in our lab or in our factory. Can you build one? Uh, and so then we were like, well, you know, we're a university, we don't really build instruments. Uh, and so you get that question enough times that is enough of a uh, uh, incentive to say, well, maybe there's a business opportunity here. That's really cool. And what I love is also that at age 23 or something like that, this is, you know, you're sitting around the table involved in these types of discussions. Yeah, trial by fire for sure. Uh, knowing what I know now after a, a lot of uh, work in the space. I think if I knew 
how challenging all these things would be, uh, I might have been scared off, but uh, I didn't. And I was very fortunate to have the great mentors and learn from a lot of great people and, and just, you know, work my butt off on it. And, and can I ask why you didn't pursue a more technical degree originally? I mean, you, you were a business guy that then now you're a technology entrepreneur, you're steeped in technology, but was there a reason you chose to go a different path? I think I saw you studied Latin American studies or something like that. Yeah, economics and Latin American studies. Um, so that's an interesting question. So as, as I said, I started working in the lab early and uh, I mean, age 12, 13, I was hanging around my dad's lab and you know, learning how to run instruments and stuff. And uh, I realized that I didn't really want to be a scientist or an engineer. I, was, I love the science. I love the engineering. And, and frankly, I've learned quite a bit about it. And, uh, but I didn't really enjoy the idea, or I didn't like the idea of, of working in a lab the rest of my career, to be frank. Um, so what I was looking for was where I could have the excitement and access to technology, but also the areas that I was more inclined and interested in, which was commercialization and building you know, a business. So that's how it, it, it came to be. I think a lot of people, just as an aside, I, I think a lot of people share that, um, that interest. You know, they want to be involved in, in high tech, stuff that really matters and is impactful, but they don't want to be at the bench doing tests and recording results and just kind of chipping away at it the way a, a researcher, you know, what's required, I guess, for, for research and for laboratory work. And so how, like, I think it's always interesting how people get involved in this type of stuff, but not from the direction of, of the laboratory, but it sounded like, and, and this seems to be a theme across a lot of the people that I've interviewed is that the grad student, um, around the technology or who's been working directly with the inventor is really also a key piece of the puzzle. You need this person to kind of push, you need, you need an Alex Reed, you to, to push forward the commercialization and the business angle. And you also very much need that grad student to then kind of become the CTO and, and push the technology forward. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, that's uh, exactly at least our experience and similar to you talking to other companies that have been successful with commercialization. Uh, it, it's, it's very, and sometimes, you know, I will say there are uh, scientists, engineers that are, are very, very business minded. So with the right mentorship and things, that role could actually be the same person uh, at least for a time until, you know, usually then you're forced to specialize because you can't do it all. But um yeah, typically an entrepreneur, executive, or you know, somebody that understands commercialization partnered up with a technologist, both need to be in the business full time. And if it's a university spin out, uh, frequently the faculty member is more of an advisor. They're not gonna leave you know, a tenured role where they're doing other research and adding value in other ways uh, to society. So they're advising, they're not gonna join the business full time. It happens, but. Uh, so you're right. You do need someone that understands the technology well enough in the day to day to be part of the venture. And, and uh, was the your co-founder the CTO who who was the grad student, right? I mean, was 
were, was he, I mean, he's older than you at this point, I would imagine, right? But at least a few years. Was he skeptical of your involvement at an early day? And did you have to overcome a bunch of hurdles in that respect? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I think he's eight, nine years older. So, uh, I mean, at that point, everyone was older than me and everyone had more experience than me. So he was certainly not the only one that was skeptical. Uh, and, and that's the interesting thing here is uh, New Orleans is, is a relatively small technology market. Not a lot of people would probably think of it as somewhere where technology comes from, you know, more Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest, right? Uh, but, you know, there, there are research institutions there and there's some really good people working on, on cool stuff in New Orleans. Um, so the flip side of that is because it's such a small market, there's not a deep bench of people with a ton of experience in startups and, and commercializing hard tech out of a university around. Uh, so it was almost like a default. Like, I mean, you got somebody willing to do it. You partner them up with some people that know what they're doing. Uh, and hope for the best. So there was a little bit of just, you know, obviously trust and passion, you know, trust from some of the key people and also passion on my part, but also there wasn't anybody else there uh, to take the reins. So. Yeah. And I feel like that's the case for so many technologies at so many institutions. It's they're sitting on the shelf and it's really a lack of a person of, of really just a person like you who is willing to do the work to move it forward. And, and I mean, that's, you know, the podcast is one thing, but in general, I mean, that's, that's something I'm definitely trying to solve is how do we get more people like you doing that? Um, because there really is quite a need. It's incredible. Yeah, there's definitely a big opportunity if you could unlock a lot of that IP. And I've had conversations like this with some folks in tech transfer offices and people like yourself. Yeah, there, there, if there was an easy way to mine and and categorize all that IP into, you know, viability, market size, risk factors, and then easily serve it up to people who want to go do the work to go, you know, start a business because that's going to suck up a lot of time and effort. Uh, that would be, it would be awesome because I do think, you know, you could start to move things forward even faster than we're seeing the pace of technology today. I agree. And, and, and so it, it, it's the, the chairman that was brought in to, to kind of guide you in this commercialization effort, who was a, a known venture capitalist. His name is Bill, right? Yeah, Bill Bottom. So how early was he brought on and what kind of stuff did you learn from him? I'm also curious to know what types of things you learn just from being exposed to your dad, who's a, a very impressive person in his own right. Um, just either growing up in the house or, or hanging around in the lab, sort of what, what kind of things did you uh, learn by osmosis from him? And, and, and what did Bill bring to the table that was complimentary or supplemental to some of that knowledge? Yeah, great uh, question. So growing up, both my parents are, you know, PhD academics, right? So growing up, uh, a lot of emphasis on education, a lot of emphasis on curiosity. I mean, I think um, just that scientific method that my dad uses and, you know, like most scientists uh, applied to daily life is almost the easiest way to synthesize that. Um, so basically, I think that curiosity to know more, to learn, 
is, is, is critical for an entrepreneur because there's so much you need to know and so little that you know that the ability to learn and find information and you know, be passionate and excited about it, uh, I think is absolutely critical uh, to developing as an entrepreneur. So I'd say that foundation growing up in that household uh, with that kind of an environment set me up uh, to then work with people like Bill and <clears throat> many, many others, you know, too many to list, honestly, uh, that I've learned things from. But, uh, you know, Bill was, was there with me every step of the way from the very, very beginning. And I think you asked before about skeptics and stuff. He believed in me. And I think he knew that if he was working with me, he could help develop me to the point where, you know, I wouldn't mess it up too bad. <laughs> and, uh, and so working with someone like Bill, uh, I mean, just the, the, the amount of knowledge and information, someone has done so many deals from the commercial angle, but is also like a PhD physicist and semiconductor. So he had the technology, he had the business. I learned you know, so much from him uh in those early years and so yeah and and frankly the confidence from him from having someone like him believe in me that early was huge so i think hopefully that answered that question yeah i mean I, I, are there any kind of glaring mistakes or errors that you made early on that, that come to mind just something that you know you think was so easily avoidable i'm always curious about that <laughs> too many to list. Uh, I mean, I, I think, I mean, and, and the interesting part is we avoided probably, you know, two or three times as many just because of having someone like Bill and other people involved. So, yeah, I mean, there's always, uh, there's always mistakes <clears throat> made. I, I will say with someone like Bill, a lot of our mistakes were less on the, uh, you know, I would say the technology, the commercial side, because I think we had a lot of that covered work in our deals as we did. But uh, as, a, as a young entrepreneur, I think the most difficult lessons to learn are always around people. Um, and you know, I think getting the right team, getting the right people in place uh, to drive ventures forward is absolutely critical and, and one of the hardest things to do right, uh, even for experienced people. So those are where my biggest lessons were, uh, like you said, where mistakes were made that I had to learn and, and continue to grow. And so what, at what point did you guys bring in Bill? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you, you and your dad saw potential in this, said, let's, okay, let's do a company. Uh, we, you started to work the SBIR angle. Did Bill come in? In, you know, in tandem with that, or let's talk about the, some of the early days in, in getting this thing capitalized. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he, um, he was actually on the advisory board of that research center uh, along with uh, a number of other local and, and um, you know, national business, business, you know, people that were um, in the industry or in tangential industries. So, yeah, there was a lot of interest in commercialization pre-company. So, you know, Bill's on the board, or now he's emeritus, but he was on the board of Tulane at the time of the university. 
uh, and the university was very interested in, in doing more of this type of activity. So uh, I think, you know, he, he jumped in at the, at the advisory board. And then when I was there saying we wanted to do a company, he was already there and said, absolutely, let's do it. I'll help you. Uh, and he jumped on from the very beginning. And, um, and like I said, so then we started to look at SBIR and, and other ways. Uh, those are fairly long cycles and uh, lower probabilities to get funded initially. Uh, so we did some of those. We ended up getting one for actually uh, a different technology that we sell into the biopharma space. But um, the early funding came from a, a, a joint development agreement with a customer. So we, we negotiated a deal with a uh, large multinational chemical company that had a facility about 45 minutes from the university. Uh, and the plant manager was someone interested in what we were doing. And you know, they had a lot of issues not seeing what was happening in their reactors to optimize production. So they said, well, why don't we work with you guys to, to build you know, the first generation of this product and put it in our plant? Uh, so that was, we said, you know, early capitalization that came directly from customers. Uh, then we got SBIR, then we raised some initial seed funding. So then all of a sudden we had uh, a number of, of sources of capital early uh, to get us off the ground. And I, and I love that the, when customers fund early iterations of things, I mean, their incentive was, again, they were just experiencing this problem. It was a pain point and they thought that your product might be able to solve that, uh, you know, I, I just think that that's always a great piece of validation for a young company, right? Is when the customers actually not are, are putting money down to see the solution. Um, how early did you begin talking to these industrial partners, customers? I mean, and, and maybe you could talk about the importance of that and, and, and how you went about doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we were, as I mentioned before, so a lot of these companies were funding research already. So first we were trying to get SBIR, as I said before, uh, we'd gone through a couple cycles and, and didn't get funding initially. So then we said, well, you know, we have these people that have been asking us. And so I just started talking to them saying, well, what if we, you know, we did some kind of joint development to get this in your plant? Uh, and we had two companies interested in doing that ended up uh, with one. Um, so really it was just mining the network of, of the, the companies that were already interested in the technology and already funding it through the university and say, look, you know, we got all this stuff with the research, let's go apply it. Um, so it, at the time it felt like a natural leap and conversation, but it might not have been intuitive for, for a lot of people to go do that. And, Again, that might, you know, that was a lot of, you know, Bill's suggestion early is like, you know, we have these customers, why don't, you know, so working with him on the strategy was a big piece to, to get that early uh, deal done. And, and presumably you also had to work with the university and the tech transfer office. Um, I mean, was there already an agreement in place with the, with the poly lab that you know covered commercialization and did you have to to carve out anything specific some type of licensing deal because you know for the company uh, please you know anything you can tell us about that would be great 
Sure. Yeah. The the company was you know a separate entity from the university. The research center was actually part of the university as a nonprofit research center. So uh, all of the IP was owned by the university already. Uh, so indeed, we did have to go negotiate with the um, the technology transfer office um, and some of the folks there <clears throat> uh, to get that license deal done. So initially what we did was we, we did an option uh, on the IP for, I forgot, six, 12 months, something like that, while we negotiated the terms of the full license. And in the meantime, you know, when we had the option, it was when we started to negotiate uh, the contract with the customer, do it SBIR. So we were obviously in parallel looking for funding uh, while we negotiate that license. Um, it, you know, there, there isn't a, maybe that's changed now, but there, there isn't really like a set formula or standard approach on how to handle uh, licensing the startups out of a university. So there was a lot of learning on both sides uh, of that, that deal. Uh, in the end, you know, our tech transfer office really wants as much technology to spin out of the university as possible and be commercialized. So uh, they've been very supportive and uh, and helped us along the way uh, to get get the technology out there. And, and do you have a future a deal for future technology that continues to be invented in the lab that you can uh, you know kind of consume with the company that you that exists? Yeah. So we we have uh, we have rights around that similar to what we would do with the um, the petrochemical and pharma companies so around the technology and the patent estate you know we do have rights of any you know anything that gets developed that we have a first uh, refusal on it and then um, with and then we've actually developed quite a bit of our own IP since the spin out some of it uh, co-owned with the university some of it uh, solely owned by the company um, so yeah, we have a, uh, an agreement to handle uh, IP <clears throat> between both entities. Yeah, I feel like that's a touchy subject and also a testament to the fact that the team, it's not necessarily about team, uh, it's not necessarily about technology, but it is a lot about team. It's, it's great to hear that, you know, your team is continuing to develop technology that's completely independent of the laboratory and the original technology that, that was developed. Um, and, and the, the license agreement, I mean, how much, I, I, you don't have to say detail, anything that's confidential, you know, feel free to uh, exclude, but how much of, how much of the funding from the, the industry partner, uh, was required, like how, how much funding did you need to unlock in order to make that license a reality? Was there a down payment on it so that you could, you know, take the, uh, get the patent, the IP assigned to you, or, um, so you would have had to come up with that money in, in no matter what, either from an investor or from a, from the customer. Um, you know, ha, I guess how critical was that initial customer funding and, and SBIR funding to the original formation of the company? Uh, yeah, each of these deals is obviously very different. Um, in this case, I think the SBIR, the customer funding, the things that we had done to generate interest gave 
a lot of credibility to what we were doing and the approach. So our conversations with the tech transfer office were more around you know, aligning interests on milestones, what it will look like in the future. So uh, some deals, like you said, that might have large upfront payments, things like that. In this case, you know, Tulane was definitely very supportive. And so we, we aligned around you know, a set of milestones for each technology that were gonna be the guide for you know, showing progress uh, for the license. And so, and, and maybe you could tell us a bit about the trajectory, I guess, more of the, I mean, you've raised some money, you, you have, I think, 25 people working for you. Tell us a bit more about the trajectory, you know, from those modest beginnings and how it's become, you know, what, what Fluence Analytics is today. You went through a rebrand. I mean, uh, let's hear the, the, the bio, I guess, of the company. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... So yeah, you, you got the cast of characters earlier with the, the founding team. Um, and then, yeah, we built it out in New Orleans uh, for quite a while. Uh, a lot of our early work was, as you, you heard, you know, customer funded, uh, a little bit of you know, friends and family type investment, uh, but mainly customers and grants. Um, and we didn't go raise any institutional capital until uh, April of 2017. And that's when uh, Energy Innovation Capital came in. Uh, they're one of the, the premier energy investors uh, in, the, in this venture space. And so they came in um, and that really helped accelerate. So up to that point, it was a lot of, as you know, with, with technology that comes out of a lab, there's a lot of additional development required, prototyping, testing, uh, so those first years were, you know, getting the units tested at customer site, uh, getting that initial data, those initial proof points uh, that would then set the foundation for what we would effectively call our first generation of real products uh, post-funding. Um, and so then, then it was more of a commercial push, you know, driving the market interest, finding all of the application markets, because what we do, <clears throat> there's just a whole... Yeah, everything from commodity materials used in construction and packaging and cars, all the way to very specialized high value products uh, used in uh, semiconductors or life science, whatever. Um, so there's very different approaches to communicating a value proposition to each of those markets. And so we had to learn quite a bit about the commercial aspects, pushing the technology, pushing the products, and uh and getting it out there so that was really the ramp up phase um and then you know we had we had uh along the way we brought in uh, some strategic investors um mitsubishi chemical out of japan jsr corporation out of japan uh and then recently we brought in yokogawa so we found a very you know, technology focused group of investors in, in japan uh for this and and then we also moved the company headquarters to uh, to Texas to Houston, so just an, an order of magnitude of more activity, you know, the talent pool. There's there's a number of factors. Uh, we did retain some ties with uh, with the university and R and D activity in New Orleans, um, but that so now basically we're poised for our next phase of growth uh, set up in in the Houston area. Obviously, in the middle of that we had a pandemic, uh, which was a very interesting time 
but we were able to, to get through actually fairly well. Uh, and now, you know, we're seeing a, a huge amount of market interest, you know, a lot of pent up demand. So our pipeline is, is pretty significant. Uh, and we'll be launching some new products uh, this year. Actually, I think we had a press release this morning for one of our life science products. So, you know, we're, we're rocking and rolling. We got the right team in place. Uh, you know, we're well capitalized and, and, and looking to, to scale. And I get, well, this is a good opportunity. I mean, are there roles that you're hiring for things that PhDs and grad students that might be listening could be interested in? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, one, we always uh, are interested in good people. So we do encourage people to, to submit uh, resumes and sometimes if things come up, we'll have specific roles, but uh, right now, we're focused really on the scaling piece, so field engineering, applications engineering, so things that uh, are focused on getting product out and working with customers uh, are the areas we're hiring most in now, uh, and, and actually on the software side. So we, we're building out quite a bit on our software side, uh, and so we're hiring there as well. And so how long was it until your first commercial product? It sounds like it was five or six years, right? Is that correct? Yeah, so I would, the early generations of what we we're doing, yeah, they were commercial, they, they were in, in the field uh, generating value, but we, we launched, like I said, and uh, the, that next generation of our truly first ones that we would make uh, a number of, so to speak, um, in that 2017 timeframe. So yeah, three, four years of, of iteration around uh, early generations of the product. And a lot of that was due to the fact that we were operating extremely lean. So as you, yeah, we didn't raise any institutional money. It was all cash flow grants. So that adds quite a bit of time uh, to get things done because you're doing it on a shoestring budget. So I think if there is one lesson, we probably could have accelerated some of that with some with more capital earlier on uh, as we built out our team. So, you know, that's one of those, those balancing acts of trying to make as much progress as possible uh, before taking on, you know, significant dilution versus, you know, taking it on to, to move faster. So those are, those are the, the strategic decisions as an entrepreneur that, you know, you always have to wrestle with. Uh, but yeah, so that, that was definitely a lot of effort in those first years. And what's your approach to that, those types of decisions? I mean, is there any any kind of system that you use or, I mean, it's, you're assessing each thing as it comes. I mean, any kind of uh, mental models or distilled uh, ideas that you've gained and, and honed out of that? Uh, I, I, I wish it was that scientific. I think it's, it's more, uh, yeah, depending on the type of decision and, and the type of experience that I have access to. So maybe that's the mental model is going to find uh, where I can get the most information the quickest to help make a decision. So that's really as an entrepreneur, uh, you know, startup CEO, you know, the job is to uh, make a lot of decisions as quickly as you can with very incomplete data sets. So uh, getting as much data as you can before you make a decision is always best. 
And then since then, you know, I've, I've learned quite a bit about, um, you know, delaying a little bit on some decisions, you know, taking a little more time to think through and, uh, and actually, um, rather than just pure speed, start to think through, you know, what the best course is. So then there's a little more optimization, but I think it really depends on the stage you're, you're at uh, and what you're trying to get done. And are there any um, resources or, I, I know like a lot of people mentioned the NSF I-Core program. I mean, are there any other resources, books, uh, anything that comes to mind that that helped you along the way besides obviously having Bill's ear or, you know, uh, and, and being able to consult him? I mean, any anything else that, that really helped you uh, figure out what to do and when? Uh, yeah, I mean, as I said, so we had, uh, there was something called the idea village in New Orleans. So there was a business accelerator. There was also the New Orleans bioinnovation center that had a commercialization team. Uh, you know, we worked with a lot of interns that did a lot of research stuff for us. So, uh, we, we leveraged every single resource we had access to, um, to, to make progress. And I think, yeah, that's a great question is, you know, you never know where the resources are and coming out of a university, especially, you know, a, a, an excellent research institution like Tulane, uh, the network you have through the alumni uh, is, is also tremendous. And so um, I think that's the other part of it is, as an entrepreneur is to think creatively about who you have access to and what knowledge you can get through all those channels and, and leverage them. Um, so that was big and yeah, everyone reads a, a lot of books. Uh, I remember one of the first ones I read was The Hard Thing About Hard Things and Ben Horowitz. Um, so it, that one was interesting because it, it walked through just the, the true miserable experience of doing a startup and how hard it can be, you know, if things don't go the right way, uh, but persevering in the end. And so, stuff like that, talking to other entrepreneurs, uh, getting those stories that, you know, it's not easy. It's not what you see uh, in the news. It's like, oh yeah, you know, you do a little bit of work and all of a sudden, you know, you're Elon Musk. That's just not the reality. Um, and so the more you can embrace that and learn to, to not sometimes enjoy it uh, because you're growing, I think the, the, the faster you'll be able to develop. And, and what was the hardest or lowest moment in the process? If you can think back to it, have you had any, I'm sure a lot, I mean, anything that comes to the top of your mind? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's yeah a bunch, you know, I mean, that, and that's part of the, the roller coaster, right. Is, is um, being able to, I always was able to bounce back within 24 hours of any you know major thing that was would normally be like a, <laughs> a horrible setback, right? So basically, you just wake up the next day and it's a new day. Uh, so there was a lot of that, you know, deals taking a long time, or you know, fundraising is always hard, especially your first round. Uh, you know, hiring, firing, yeah. So there's always going to be very, very challenging moments um, and decisions to be that, you know, that are going to have to be made. So <clears throat> I think more important than focusing on the lows is how you, uh, how you bounce back 
uh, to wake up and do it all over again. And, and what, what do you do? I mean, do you do anything specific to reset or you just kind of make a mental decision that I'm going to give this, I'm going to let this, you know, simmer for one day and then tomorrow will be completely different. Uh, it, it was, I mean, a lot of it initially was just, you know, forget and move on. Yeah. So simmer and then, you know, wake up and it's, yeah, new day, new opportunity. Uh, over time, I've, I've done a lot more, uh, person, you know, so like meditation and things like that, that, that help a lot with that process. So, uh, initially it was just the young energy to, to keep plowing through. And then eventually, you know, you got to work in some more practical approaches to, to sustaining it. And, and, and not to backtrack, but I, I did want to ask a little bit about this. So when you first started capitalizing the company, you're trying to get SBIR grants. Um, the, the friends and family money that you raised, I mean, was that to help round out the research or was that to complement it, complement any SBIR with, with, uh, with funding so that you could pay for salaries, pay yourself? I mean, how did you ma uh, manage and budget at that stage? What's critical? I mean, wh what can you allocate for yourself and for, you know, uh, business development efforts? And, and how do you kind of build that budget? Yeah. And, and uh, so if you're doing what we did, stuff with joint development and grants, you know, you can't just use that money for everything, as you noted, but a business needs to have all the functions you said. So, you know, business development, and then you're gonna have to fundraise, and then you're gonna have to probably travel if you're in a place, you know, like New Orleans, where you're not gonna have access to, to capital. I mean, if you're already in a location where you have easier access to capital and customers, that helps a lot um, on time and, and money. Uh, the flip side is it's probably a very expensive place to be because uh, you're probably on a coast. Uh, so that was one of the advantages we had. It was, fair, it was much lower cost to run a business in some ways in New Orleans. You know, the higher costs come later uh, as you try to scale and, you know, you need certain types of roles or people. But uh, initially, it's a great place to start a business. Um, and then, um, yeah, so you, you do have to plan for those things. And, and you're right, SBIR and some of these programs allow you to have matching funds to get to unlock additional funds to do things. So most of it was going into the product development and the research. Um, and then, you know, as an entrepreneur, I was, uh, you know, drawing very, very low, you know, very, very below market uh, salaries for almost the entire existence of the company. So on my end, you know, that, that was it, you know, try to get paid last. So I think especially early, making sure that you have the right team is, is more important, you know, because presumably you have a larger equity position. Uh, as you start to bring in investors and take dilution and things like that, then I think those are opportunities to get to closer to market or market depending on your location so that you don't have to worry about day-to-day -day expenses and things and stuff like that. And how did you know the product was ready for you to go out and raise that institutional round? I mean, I, I guess, in 2017, you probably had started working on that round in 2015 or something like that. I mean, when did you know that it was time to kind of go in and inject fuel 
into this thing? And also as a corollary to that, like, when did you, when did you feel like this thing was really working? I'm also curious to, to hear about that. Uh, well, I mean, when we had the validation from the customers showing the value. Yeah, pretty I mean, early, pretty early on. Yeah. Yeah. We had the initial proof very early. So we, you know, we showed it worked and we showed that uh, it, it delivered the value that they were expecting. Uh, so that was exciting. Um, and that, re- was- that, that just to tease that point out, that really continues to just underscore the importance of talking to customers at a very early stage. Yeah, there was another great book, and and I mean everyone or a lot of people know Lean Startup, uh, and you mentioned Icore. I think they've taken a lot of stuff from that, and Steve Blank's um, the, the the Four Steps of the Epiphany. So that's another great approach. Uh, we were doing it kind of intuitively in some ways because of the advice we were getting, but it is a, a very well documented formula that's that's distilled into something that you can execute uh as an entrepreneur yeah talking to as many customers as possible as early as possible and that's another thing i'd do a lot more of now it's it's, if i had to start over we did that a lot i would do even more uh to to understand the best markets to go after first and things like that so a lot of it was go ahead sorry oh i I was gonna say i mean a lot of like the lean startup methodology a lot of that a lot of people think that that stuff is reserved for software uh, where you have users and, you know, nobody's going to necessarily kind of steal your idea and there's not, there's less secrecy around the intellectual property, but it's really not the case, um, you know, with hardware, you absolutely have to get in front of these guys because they could be your customer. They can tell you you're poking around in the complete wrong space. I mean, they're experts and they're experts with the problem, I guess. Right. Absolutely. Now I would say, actually, if you're going to do a hard hardware or hard tech, whatever the, you know, people, you know, whatever you're doing, energy, that's going to have a Deep long tech, cycle. hard science, whatever. Yeah. yeah whatever the is. yeah. <laughs> so if you're doing something like that, it's going to take you a lot longer and a lot more time and money and effort. So in fact, you should absolutely do that first step even more so than on the software side, software, you can experiment almost as you go with the product, you know, you could put out an MVP, very hard to put out an MVP on some of these things um, with hardware, at least, you know, time, timeline and effort. So I would say hundred percent, you better get out there and talk to customers first, or you could burn five, 10 years uh, without, if, if you get the, maybe it's five years instead of one or two with just a pure software play. So it definitely is worth it. And, and so you mentioned that as something that you would have done differently as even talking to more customers. It sounds like maybe the first vertical or application that you considered might have been a little different had you been doing that more, you know, even more. Is there anything else that you would do differently um, knowing what you know now? Uh, that's a very loaded. Yes, a lot of things. Um <laughs> But just, no. just the first couple of major exams, I'm sure everything to some <laughs> extent, but yeah. yeah, but anything that comes to mind just to, that, you know, for us to learn from your, you know, the, the, the trial by fire, as you put it, that you went through. So, you know, maybe there's mistakes in there that, that some of us out here can avoid. Yeah. And some of it, unfortunately, you probably will not be able to avoid because you got to go experience it just to learn it the hard way. But 
most of it, as I said before, is really around uh, the, the people, the culture side of things, because you can have the best technology, you can have funding, uh, but you really need a team that can execute. So you, you need really good people. And then the first point, which is the key one, is you better be going after a viable market. So we knew that, thankfully. Uh, there's just probably, like you said, ways we could have grown faster if we might have targeted different verticals because we had so many to choose from, and we still do. But um, I think the key is, is knowing that you're going after a good market, but really have a, a, a team that can pull together, go through those ups and downs, um, and and be complementary to get through that so building that team i'd say those are the areas where uh now i know a lot more about how to build a team like that uh and you know you have help but you don't really know until you make some wrong decisions uh so that that i think is probably the biggest area and there's a lot of subsections to that but i, I can is there anything any one subsection that you could say like something that you learned that is the best way to build a team, something to keep in mind, something, you know, anything like that? Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, part of it is you, you learn if you can very clearly identify values and, you know, specific uh, behaviors and traits that you're looking for, you have things that'll make someone successful in a startup, right? I think if you can clearly know that going in, uh, and we and I've adjusted a lot of how I try to suss that out. So I'd say if you if you know that, then you'll know you can pick people that will be a fit to to work in a startup. Because I mean, a lot of scientists and engineers, especially if you're in a company like this, uh, they don't like constant change. Um, you know, they like to execute on on specific paths. So you need some you need types of people who are extremely adaptable. Uh, to roll with the punches that the business is going to experience. So I'd say, yeah, the, just having clear values and sticking to those as you, as you select people. Uh, so initially, I didn't even think about that. I looked purely just for talent. And we had, we've had awesome people work at our company, still do. Um, so number two is more fit. You know? So you can have all the talent you want, but if they can't work together, uh, then you're gonna have a problem. So that's the part I'm talking about that I, I ignored initially. Well, yeah, uh, and the ad the adaptability. I, I mean, I I wouldn't even know where to begin in 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 trying to assess that from someone. It sounds difficult. <laughs> it's it's very difficult, and part of it is you just kind of get some pattern recognition after you've made some mistakes. <laughs> you're like, oh uh, yeah, that's a red flag. I think you know, but there's yeah, there's definitely ways you could you could probe and 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 check those things out. Um, any advice that you would want to give that you can give to uh, grad students, PhDs and entrepreneurs out there that are listening to this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it was in what we talked about, Max. It was uh, yeah, get a mentor if you've never done it before, which if you're a grad student or early entrepreneur probably haven't or have limited experience. So Go find as many people that did it and did it well that you can learn from. Um, I think we talked a little bit about learning. So be willing, ready, and, and excited about learning and getting way out of your comfort zone. 
and living out of your comfort zone because that's where you'll be for a very, very long time. Um, and yeah, you know, find the resources, talk to customers. I mean, all that advice, I think we covered it all. Those are all the things that, you know, going in, I would definitely want to hear. It's like, how, how do I make, how do I give myself at least the best probability to succeed? Because baseline, you got to work really hard and you got to be smart and you got to have, you know, good technology, right? So that's just, the, that's just the ticket to play. So the other things are, you know, the market, the people, all that stuff. That's where the more you can apply these things, the higher your likelihood or probability of success would be. Well, that's great, Alex. I really appreciate it. Um, I think it's a good place to wrap up. Where can people find you if they want to reach out? How do you like to be contacted? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, LinkedIn is usually the best way to find me. Okay. Well, Alex Reed, Fluent Analytics. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. This was awesome, Max. Thank you. And just everyone join, uh, visit bountiful.work, W-O-R-K, to join our community. And thank you for listening. Alex, thanks again for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for listening. But now we need your help. We're building a community of scientists, students, entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors to commercialize meaningful technology and research. Join us at bountiful.work today to find opportunities and realize your power to save the world.